Several years ago, after graduating high school, I attended Rock Valley College. Go Golden Eagles. It's actually a great program. So if you're not sure what you're going to do, seniors, it's a good bet. While I was there, one of the most interesting classes I took was philosophy. Not because my mind typically bends that way, and not because I agreed with the conclusion that my professor would often make, but it was interesting because it caused me to think differently. It caused me to think in a way that I wasn't accustomed to thinking. And one of the things we spent an extended amount of time on philosophy was an allegory by a very famous philosopher named Plato. It is called the cave, or Plato's cave, and if you take any philosophy class anywhere, you will probably learn about this. So I'm going to try, see if we can get there. Yes, okay, great. I have slides. I'm coming prepared tonight. So what this allegory is, is there is, oh, will this work? No, you can't see that. That's okay. It's a laser pointer. The guy on the right is a prisoner. He's trapped in prison underground. And what he sees is the projection of that image. Okay, so the guy's actually holding a bird, but what that guy sees is just the image of a bird, the shadow of a bird. And the prisoner can't actually see the object. It's hidden from his view. And so if you were to not provide any more context to this prisoner, he would put together that that image is what a bird is. Okay, you see how how he can be confused in what reality is based on what he can see. But what is the point of this and what does it have to do with my sermon tonight? Well, I don't agree with a lot of the things that Plato concludes. One thing that is helpful that we can see from this image right here is that context is important. It is very important. In fact, understanding the context of what is happening is essential for us to understand the meaning of what is happening. Here's another example. If you lived in 1935 and I gave you a gift of $10, would it mean more to you then than if I gave you a gift of $10 today? Absolutely. First, because 1935 is the middle of the Great Depression. No one had extra money. And secondly, because of the wonderful thing called inflation, which makes your money shrink. Not so good. But the context of that gift would affect the value of that gift. Therefore, it would affect how we feel when we receive it. An event's context does not alter whether or not it is true, but it does alter how we are to hear it, how we're to interpret it, and how we are to apply it. If you don't start with understanding the proper context, you can very quickly end in the wrong place. Tonight, we're starting a new series that will lead us through the spring semester on the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, please open to Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, Nehemiah is before Psalms and Proverbs. If you split your Bible in half, you'll probably open the Psalms. If you split there, you'll need to turn to the left. But it's also after the Kings, the Chronicles, kind of... It is after a lot of the history, but certainly still kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. And this might lead us to think that it takes place around the middle of the Old Testament. But the truth is, is that Nehemiah is the last historical book in the Old Testament. You know that, that there are no events recorded after the book of Nehemiah, chronologically, according to the timeline of history, before 
the New Testament. It's crazy. 400 years. We will unpack more pieces of the context of this book in the future. But there are a few things that we need to know first. First, we pick up after almost all of the characters of the Old Testament are gone and away with. All the kings have ruled and died. All the prophets have come and gone. Most of the prophets, I should say. All the judges have lived, served, died. Even King David, at this point, Nehemiah chapter 1, has died 500 years ago. Okay, so they're not all clumped together like this. And right after David sinned terribly, committing adultery with Bathsheba, a story many of us are familiar with, God promises that because of his sin, he is going to split the kingdom in half. So I have another slide. Let's see if we can do this. Yes, great, great. This is good news. The kingdom divides. So all of the color, you don't need to read the names. I understand you probably won't be able to. All of the colored section is the nation. And the kingdom divides into two nations. Now, the red one on top is Israel. Israel's capital is Samaria, and they are the northern kingdom. You can remember it this way. Samaria, Israel, north. S-I-N. Sin. Okay? That'll come in handy. The lower kingdom, the purple one, is Judah. They are in the south. That is Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. Their acronym doesn't matter. You will not be quizzed on this, but I hope it helps. Just keep it in your mind. Both the kings ha- kingdoms have a line of kings that all fall short, even of David, who certainly was not perfect, but they're all less than him. They're not as good. The kingdoms are plagued with sin, rebellion, all manners of unrighteousness, and the people are stiff-necked, hard-headed, and slow to repent. If you had to guess, based on the acronym I gave you, which was the better kingdom? Anyone? Judah. Israel was not the better kingdom. That's the correct answer. But the truth is that Judah wasn't a great nation either. They were just comparatively better in a head-to-head battle. That's like me saying the Detroit, sorry, the Chicago Bulls are not a very good basketball team this year. But when you compare them to the Detroit Pistons, they're a much better basketball team. If you don't follow basketball, which I don't, I had to look this stat up. The Bulls have won about half their games. Detroit has won like three out of like 30 games, okay? They're terrible. The kingdom of Judah did have some good rulers. King Asa, King Hezekiah, King Josiah. And so because of their better, their greater faithfulness to God, God allowed their kingdom to last a little bit longer. So Nehemiah takes place in the middle of the 400s BC. Remember, BC is kind of confusing because it's going down, okay? 400 BC, 400 years away from Jesus. The northern kingdom, up top, the sin kingdom, gets conquered in the middle of the 700s. And then the purple kingdom, Judah, gets conquered 150 years later. Okay, so, I have another, oh, sorry. No, wrong way. There we go. Okay, so... I'll gloss over this one, okay? The dark green, if you can see that, was the kingdom that conquered the northern kingdom, Israel. The light green came later. This empire continued to grow, and they eventually also conquered Judah. That's all I need to know for that one. In the conquering of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, 
the kingdom of Babylon, took all the best people, all the cultural elites. So think about this. There's this little city left. Everything else is, is surrounded. It's gone. It's pillaged. It's captured by the enemy. Finally, they take over God's city, Jerusalem. And they pull out all of the wealthy people, all of the successful people, all of the people that are making progress in society. And they just leave the poorest, the beggars, the lame, the sick. Those people are left. But there's more and more battle that takes place. So first Assyria is the powerhouse, then Babylon, and then Persia. And I just have one more slide here of history, and then we'll get into this. So you can see these empires, they started small, and they will continue. I'm going to do something unorthodox to grow. Okay, so in this map, all of the color, that's the Persian Empire. Remember we started, like, right there. Right there, that was it. And it just has grown and grown and grown. And God has allowed these rulers to gain in strength. And this map is Persia in 500 BC, which is pretty close to when Nehemiah was written. Okay? So that's the world. That is the state of the world when Nehemiah comes on the scene. Everything is owned by Persia. There's not much hope for God's people. And with that, I think we've got enough context. So thanks for bearing with me. Your history lesson is over. We'll share some more bits of context as we go. But let's pray before we get into our text. Lord, be with us tonight. Open your word to us. Let it not be a dull history lesson, but rather the living and active word of God that as it goes forth has the capacity to pierce our hearts, to meet us where we're at, to know where we're at, to convict us of our sin, and to lead us to repentance and grace. We ask for that end tonight. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to just go here. Cool. Okay, that's right. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning my city, Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, which name literally translates to wait on God. It's pretty prophetic. Wait on God now lives in the capital of Persia. Remember that massive country. He's hundreds of miles away from where his people are from. And the other thing to remember is that from the time that his people got taken away to the time that he is writing this book is like 150 years. It's a long time. Nehemiah's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been to the land of his fathers and his homeland. He has lived, been born and lived in Susa, in the capital of Persia. Because of that, he likely hasn't heard anything about what's going on in his home country. He doesn't know the state of things. He can't just check out you know, Google News and see what's happening out in Jerusalem, right? He can't text someone and see what's, what's going on. He's waiting on a messenger to go to Judah and to come back. And that's exactly what happens. We'll learn more about that in the future. But what's important is that when his brother Hanani returns from the land... 
And he's waiting. Nehemiah's just waiting for this. For, oh, how's the report? How are the people doing? Are they doing well? Are they fighting? Are they, are they building? Nehemiah's brother delivers some bad news. Jerusalem's been wrecked. The people who are left are in danger. They're ashamed. People around them are mocking them, saying, where is your God? If he's so great, why has he left you like this? The walls are broken down. The city is defenseless. And the question tonight is, what does Nehemiah do in response? What would you do in response? If you had been pulled out from your home, and not just from your home, but from your friends, and not just from your friends, but from your school, and not just from your school, but your sports teams, your theater clubs, you were transported to another country whom you know no one, whom no one likes you, you're actually the enemy, they speak a different language, no one cares for you, how would you feel? How would you feel to be in this situation? And you finally hear that there's, there's a messenger that's coming to deliver a report of your home. And, and you're excited and you're looking forward to hearing this good news that, that the people are, are, are getting it together. They're figuring it out. They're working their way towards success. And then you find out that the opposite has happened. More people actually have been killed. And the state that you last heard, it's gotten worse. Okay? The hope that you had on this earth just crumbled. If you put any more hope in that, you would be very disappointed. And Nehemiah's response inspires my title tonight, which is Courageous Prayer and Suffering. Courageous Prayer and Suffering. Nehemiah sets forth a godly example for what it looks like to pray. And not just to offer up a few words to God when you need some help, but to pray boldly and passionately to the Lord, the God of heaven. I don't know the pressures and the trials that you are facing don't know what you're walking through at home, in the halls at school. I don't, I don't know all of those things, and I'm sure some of those things are very, very hard. But I do find hope when I read this passage, and I pray that you will tonight as well to see this great biblical model of prayer, of how we're to bring our needs to the Lord. My aim tonight is to show you, according to this text, what our prayer should look like, What should it be characterized by? Let's look at verse 4. As soon as Nehemiah hears the report, I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My first point, courageous prayer and suffering recognizes reality. Real prayer begins with a recognition of where we're at. Imagine a friend that you have that you see is really struggling. You know, you know something's probably going on. You're not sure what. And so you care about them and you ask them, hey, what, how you doing? They just say, good. Kind of shuts down the conversation and they're communicating to you that I don't really want to talk about it. When we continue to ask that and they don't address it, it shuts down the relationship. But here in Nehemiah 1, as well as many other places in the Bible, prayer starts with an individual realizing reality and recognizing it and calling it as it is. Not pretending that it's not there, but addressing it, even as they go to the Lord in prayer. King David's a great example of this. You can read Psalm 42 if you'd like another reference. He does the same thing. 
And in this passage, Nehemiah hears bad news. He sits down, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. As we'll see throughout this book, Nehemiah is a man's man, as the definition goes. He is bold. He is courageous. He fights hard. He works hard. He's considerate. And he is fearless like a lion. So to hear the news that a man like this falls down on the ground weeping, you think that's a pretty small man to do that, right? That's the notion that we have. But that's not true. That's not according to the Bible. Nehemiah hears this news and it truly is terrible news. That's how we see that in how he responds. The truth is is that when we come to God without being willing to admit where our emotions really are at, we are missing out on relationship with him. What kind of friendship really exists between two people who always insist that everything's good and they're doing fine? Not a very good relationship, right? There's not much depth in that relationship. It's pretty obvious when those are your responses over and over again. There's not communion. There's not fellowship. There's not sticking together. And Nehemiah doesn't try to suck it up to keep his chin held high to pretend that these words don't hurt him. And that should be a great reminder to us. To some of us who tend to be prideful, we want to prove to the world that you know, we can do it. Nothing can hurt us. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do great, right? Nehemiah stopped dead in his tracks and weeps. But his weeping leads to something. Let's keep reading to hear how his weeping leads to prayer. Pick up in verse 5 with me. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant love, covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Point number two, courageous prayer and suffering praises God. I love how he begins this prayer. It's so good for us to remember, to go back to. Yes, Nehemiah hears the news, responds in sadness, but when he looks to God, his first words are praise. Do you notice that? Nehemiah just got the worst news of his entire life, and he begins his prayer by saying, God, you're so great. You're so powerful. You love me so much. How natural it can be for us when things aren't going well, when things aren't turning out how we longed or hoped for, to wave our fists at God and say, what, what happened? It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be like this, God. It wasn't supposed to end up this way. Instead, Nehemiah starts by praising the Lord. How many of our prayers in the morning begin this way? How many of our prayers, when we feel in great need, start with these words? When your world is crumbling, when someone betrays you and you go to the Lord in prayer, when your hope is crushed, how many of your prayers begin by saying, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You see, this prayer is a prayer of someone who is confident in God's power. You see that? He's confident that God is in control of all things. And that's a comfort to him as it should be to us. When we know that nothing happens, nothing, literally nothing happens apart from God's ultimate purposes in your life, we're comforted. To know that Nehemiah, as he hears these shocking words, these crushing words, he may be surprised by them, 
But God isn't. God's not surprised by that. God's not surprised by your trouble. And in fact, a great defense of the fact that God is not only in control, but he's ultimately planning all of these things is in Acts chapter 4. You can look at that in your small group. God is in control of all things. Nehemiah starts his prayer with a recognition that God is God and he is not. This is the God of heaven, the Almighty One, whom in heaven hundreds of millions of angels are bowing down in worship because it is due to him. And this convicts us because our thoughts of God are so often littler than that, very regularly. One reason why this is so good to put toward the front of our prayers is because it helps us to see that there is a huge difference between God and us, a massive difference. And that leads to the next point. Courageous prayer and suffering, number three, confesses sin. Confesses sin. Look back down with me at verse six. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your people. Which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember your word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Nehemiah's people were unfaithful and they were scattered. That's what we talked about at the beginning of this message. The division of the kingdom, the conquering from the enemies. If the people would have obeyed, that wouldn't have happened. But they disobeyed. They rebelled against God, and God brought enemies to overwhelm them. And what Nehemiah is actually referring to when he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses is from Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you have your Bible, flip there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. In the context of this, is Moses, this is one of Moses' farewell addresses to the people. He's summarizing all that God said to him, the instructions to the people. And Moses warns the nation, saying, if they turn away from the good and gracious God who's delivered them from Egypt, who's walked by their side, who's fed them in the wilderness, who's provided water when they're thirsty, who has met every single opponent and delivered them from them, if they turn away from this God, they will not live long in this land. They will be utterly destroyed. Reading from verse 26, if the people sin, Moses reminds them of this judgment. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 26. Moses speaking, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. It will not be good news if you turn from the Lord. And that's exactly what the people of God did. Keep a bookmark or finger or card in this page. We're going to come back to it. But if we look back to Nehemiah, notice how Nehemiah confesses his sin. You see that he starts by saying, God, you're worthy of my praise. 
And then he admits his fault. And he starts with the nation. He says, we've sinned against you. We've turned away. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and I and my father's house have sinned. This is not a prayer that says, God, we're sorry for not doing good enough. Or, I'm sorry for the world who's living so sinfully. Or, oh, if only America could just get it together and start following what God said, we'd be doing better. Right? None of that. Those statements don't take responsibility for the sin. Nehemiah also doesn't try and blame shift his, the weight of his sin to someone else. We do this when we say prayers like this. God, I'm sorry that I got angry at my sister today. But can you help her see how annoying she is? God, I know I disobeyed my dad today, but he was wrong in his decision. He shouldn't have said that. Would you help him to see his sin? Right? You see how that's, it's kind of a confession, but it's really not. You're not taking ownership or accepting the weight of that sin. The whole purpose of those statements is to put the sin on someone else's back. But Nehemiah doesn't do this. He confesses we have sinned as a nation and we have sinned personally. I have sinned personally. Confessing sin is hard and it makes us uncomfortable because it recognizes and exposes the fact that we are weak and we need help. But it is the only way to genuine relationship and communion with God. Confession of our sin is the only way to genuine relationship and communion with God. Rosari Butterfield says it this way, you cannot bypass repentance and get to grace. You can't receive the blessing of God without admitting that you need it. The Lord knows all that we do, and so it should not surprise us when we that it should not scare us to confess to him. We're not sharing something that he doesn't know. And we need to remember that, that he's seen everything that has happened in your room in the dark. And he has seen every intention in your heart when you wear an immodest outfit. He has heard the words that go out like flattery to a friend, but really they're meant to cut down. He doesn't just watch the action He doesn't just hear the words, but he can see the intention in your heart as those things are coming out of you. He sees right through us. So what then leads a person to raw, complete, unfiltered confession, acknowledgement of our sin? How does someone pray that courageously, especially while they're suffering? What's the key? Last point, number four, we have to trust God's promises. Courageous prayer and suffering trusts God's promises. Let's read back from verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. There's the judgment. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. And bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is wrecked at the condition and the sin of his people. But what he reminds himself in his prayer is that we serve a God who is gracious and merciful. 
who accepts us when we confess our sin to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Nehemiah here is remembering the promise of God that says when we look to him by faith, we are welcomed home. No matter how far the enemy, our sin, has scattered us and has sent us away from God, we're brought home when we look to him by faith. Flip back to that passage in Deuteronomy 4. Verse 27, 28, tell the judgment. But read with me, verse 29. Deuteronomy 4, 29. Moses gives the indictment, but then he says this. But from there. Thank God for the buts of the Bible. But from there. You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all of these things come upon you in the latter days, you, this is good news, you will return to the Lord your God and you will obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And though we are not the nation of Israel, this doesn't speak directly to us. We are members who believe in Jesus Christ of a better promise, a better covenant, the new covenant, which guarantees that if we look to the Lord in faith, he will bring us home. He will bring us to the chosen place and he will dwell with us there. That's the picture in Revelation 21. And our God will be with us. He will dwell with us. If you've not trusted in this great hope, please do tonight. Don't leave before you admit and recognize my sin has left me far from God. And yet I trust in the promise of God that if I look to Jesus in faith, he will welcome me home. There's no sin that's separated me too far. There's no circumstance that's ostracized me too much. If I look to the Lord in faith, I will be called a child, a son, a daughter, and welcomed, not just to be on his team, but to be in his family. Know that the Lord pursues and welcome homes the sinner and the outcast. And to the believer, do you feel discouraged in prayer? Do you feel like your words are just going up? Empty air, no one listening. Do you long for the confidence to pray courageously like this? Well, pray in this way. Begin by recognizing your reality. Admit, this is where I'm at. And then ascribe glory to the Lord. Praise Him for who He is. Thank Him for what He's already done, for the character that He demonstrates to us His goodness, His kindness. His mercy, His covenant love. Confess your sin to Him, knowing that He is faithful to forgive you. And all the while, trust in God's promises that for those who trust in Him, He's going to bring all the way home. All the way home. That is a great comfort to me. To know that when I sin, the Lord is faithful. And he will himself confirm, strengthen, establish, and restore me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And believer, that promises for all of you tonight as well. I'll close with this. Nehemiah 1.10. He says to the people, 
They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Praise the Lord that he is greater than all of our foes, even sin and death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which nourishes us, which exposes our heart. Pray that hearts in this room, even going forward, would be melted by your word, convicted of their sin and led to repentance. It is a grace and it is a gift that is offered to us. Would you help us to receive that? Be with us as we discuss your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.